Let's pray together, please. Father, thank you for this time to open up your word, and we pray that we would receive his truths with faith and love, live them up in our hearts, and practice them in our lives. In Jesus' name we ask, amen. Please take your Bibles and turn to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20, verse 13, is our scripture reading and sermon text for this morning. Exodus chapter 20, verse 13. Exodus chapter 20, verse 13. This is God's word. You shall not murder. May God bless the reading of his holy word. There's a lot more than meets the eye there, I assure you. Of all the commandments of God, the sixth is the one that fallen humanity will most often believe that they have kept. And anyone that's ever gone out and witnessed the people and shared the gospel of people, when you go through some of the law questions, what's the one thing people are really sure they've kept? This one. I've never killed anybody. How many times have we heard people say that? I've never killed anybody. And for most people, outwardly, physically, that's probably true. As always, That simple commandment, you shall not murder, means far more than merely physically taking your own or someone else's life. Do you know that in the whole Bible, there are only three sins that actually cry out to God for vengeance? Now, obviously, every sin deserves God's wrath and curse, but there's three that are so heinous, so vile, so evil, that they cry out to God. The first one is oppression. Oppression. When people, the helpless, the defenseless, when they're oppressed, it cries out to God for vengeance. Job 35.9 says that. Exodus 3.9 says that. Isaiah 5.7, Isaiah 19.20, and many other passages. Another one that does that is sodomy. Sodomy cries out to God, cries out to the heavens. Genesis 18.21 says that. That the outcry that's come up to heaven from Sodom and Gomorrah is so great that God rained fire and brimstone upon that place. And the other one is murder. Murder is a sin that cries out to God for vengeance. When Cain killed his brother Abel, we're told that Abel's blood had a voice and that that voice cried out to God. He said that to Cain. The the voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Cries out for what? For divine vengeance, retribution. And while the word of God commands us to to beware of people. It commands us to watch out for certain types of people, to be on guard against certain types of people, to turn away from certain types of people, and not to be friends with certain types of people, people that hate God and hate his law and walk contrary to his truth. We are still commanded, however, to love our neighbor and not to murder them. We are not permitted to murder. We are not allowed to injure or to endanger the bodies, the names or reputations, or souls of our neighbors. Except in very limited cases. If you're a magistrate putting someone to death, if it's self-defense, someone breaks in your house, yes, indeed, you have the right to self-defense. But generally speaking, in our day in and day out existence, we are not permitted to hurt or injure people ever. The two great commands are to love God and to love our neighbor. We're not allowed to injure others. We're not allowed to injure ourselves Murdering others will be our subject this morning. We're going to talk about a couple other things, probably in at least one more sermon, maybe two more. But this morning we're going to focus on 
the prohibition of killing other people, murdering other people, and all the ways that we can do that. And I've given you a fairly extensive outline there in your bulletin if you want to look at that on the back there. That's one reason we don't have as many announcements is because my outline is really long this morning. But let's go ahead and start plowing into it there. Not murdering others. That's the main point of, of this morning's message. Not murdering others. There are many ways that we can murder or hurt other people. And the first one is we are not permitted to murder someone's name. We're not allowed to hurt people's names. Remember David, King David complained, and this complaint actually becomes the complaint of Jesus himself. Psalm 35, verse 11, they laid to my charge things I knew not. We are not allowed to lie about people, to falsely accuse them of anything. Did you know that in the Old Testament law, and I'll tell you, I really wish this was enforced today, lying about people or falsely accusing them was a very serious, not just a sin, but a crime. It was a crime that was punishable by the magistrate. Deuteronomy 19.18 And the judges shall make careful inquiry. And indeed, if the witness is a false witness who has testified falsely against his brother, then you shall do to him as he thought to have done to his brother. If you falsely accuse someone of a capital crime and it was found out that you were lying, you would be put to death. That's how serious that was. If you lied about someone and as a false witness and it was discovered whatever penalty they would have gotten if, it had, if that accusation had stuck to them that is to be inflicted upon the person that made the accusation why? why? it's a very serious sin against God to lie about someone to make false accusations against them it's also very serious to accuse someone of something with no evidence or facts when this happened in Israel, the law of God required that whatever penalty they would have gotten is to be given to that person. And it specifically says in that same passage, a couple verses later, your eyes shall not pity them. You could not make exceptions to this. Life shall be for life. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Hurting someone's good name was like murdering them in God's eyes. Seeking someone's harm or seeking the harm of their reputation is a sin against God because it violates the sixth commandment. And of course, what else does it violate? The ninth commandment. And if you think hard enough, it violates pretty much all of them. Now, we may have very good reasons at times to despise certain people, but we never have the right to hurt them. We never have the right to take vengeance on anyone, and we never have the right to lie about people. Romans 12, 18 says, If it's possible, as much as it depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. In other words, let God do what he'll do way better than you anyway. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. One person um, who's uh, important in my life, been a Christian for nearly 50 years, told me when they were first converted, when they were first converted to the Lord Jesus and saved, there were three people that constantly kept coming into his mind. For years, these people, from the time he was saved, these three people kept coming into his mind. And there were people that had wronged him in the past, people that had sinned against him very seriously in the past. And he told me, that if he could have hurt any one of them and gotten away with it, he would have done it. 
And he told me he had to learn to let that go and leave it to God. To stop meditating on them. Leave it in the hands of the just, righteous, and perfect avenger. He'll take care of it. Don't let it eat away at you. I want to encourage you, if you struggle with the same kinds of thoughts about people, uh, to know this. As you, as you get to know God better, and as you get to, to know his character better, it becomes easier and easier to let go of things like that and to just leave them in the hands of the just and holy God. Let God deal with people, getting, getting back at them in his own time. Remember Jeremiah? You want to talk about someone who had reason to despise certain people, a lot of people? He was a godly man. He was lied about constantly, slandered constantly, abused, imprisoned, tortured, persecuted. And he wrote this. It's, it's okay to pray like this. He said in Jeremiah 15, 15, Oh Lord, you know, remember me and visit me. Take vengeance for me on my persecutors. And your enduring patience, do not take me away. Know that for your sake, I have suffered rebuke. He says, Lord, take vengeance on these people that keep throwing me down in the well. And keep lying about me. And keep slandering me. And keep abusing me. Take vengeance on them. But he doesn't do it himself. He simply asks God and then leaves it alone. If you're a Christian, sooner or later, you will have enemies and they will persecute you. That is a promise that God makes to us. 2 Timothy 3.12 Yes, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Did you know that Martin Luther looked at persecution as a mark of a true Christian and the Christian church. That a church that is not persecuted at all clearly cannot be standing for the truth. It can't be. Because if you're standing for the truth, you will have enemies. People will not like you. Like Jeremiah long ago, that persecution will be because you're godly. It'll be because you don't run with the unbelieving crowd recklessly into sin. That persecution will be because you follow Christ. Because you love the law of God. Because you try to do what's right. God will take vengeance on your persecutors in this life or the next. Or he'll save them. He'll save them. Leave it in the hands of God. I encourage you. Don't let righteous anger at your enemies consume your vitality or your energy. It is good and right and necessary at times. Don't get me wrong. It is good and right and necessary at times. Indeed, it's a direct act of obedience to God to judge people and to label them with biblical labels. Did you know that? God requires you to recognize dogs, pigs, scoffers, slothful, foolish, etc. But it's still a sin to maliciously harm their name in any way. We can make those kinds of assessments. We have to, at times, to protect ourselves from them. And God's word tells us how to identify them, but it's still wrong for us to be malicious towards them or to try to harm them at all. That violates this commandment. Vengeance belongs to God, never to us. Vengeance belongs to the magistrate, but never to us. People may be our enemies, but they're still made in God's image. As I said, we always have the right to self-defense. If someone breaks into your house, the Old Testament law teaches that their life is forfeit. Their life is forfeit if you take it to defend yourself or your family. But we never have the right to take vengeance on anyone for any reason. Vengeance belongs to God. Never seek in any way to rob God of what he will do perfectly by taking into your own hands his vengeance. And don't ever do that towards someone's name. Don't ever try to slander someone. Don't ever try to, to slant information to make them look worse than they really are. That's a violation of this commandment. We can kill people physically. We can also kill their reputations. So that's the first point. 
name murder, murdering someone's name. Now the, the main part of this morning's message to you, not murdering someone's body, not murdering them physically. There are many ways this aspect of this commandment can be violated and broken. The thing to remember is this, life, life is a sovereign gift of God. Life is something only God can give and only God can take. And only we are allowed to take in very specific, very clearly defined circumstances. And we'll get to that here a little bit more in a minute. Doing something to take another's life or to endanger their life. As we already saw, it's a sin which is so serious that it cries out to God for vengeance. It cries out to God for vengeance. Now, the thing we also need to think about, what are the sins that lead to murder? People typically don't just suddenly murder. They're sins that that will take deep root in us, that will lead us in that direction. The first one I have in your outline there is sinful anger. Sinful anger. James 1.19. So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. There is a reason that the elders of the church have to be men who are not quick-tempered, not easily angered. It ought to take a lot, a lot of work to make us angry. Anger is a good emotion. It's a divinely given emotion. It is there. It's something that can be a good thing. It's there to stir up passion and energy to solve a problem, not to break our phones or punch holes in the walls. Anger is a good emotion when it's directed at solving a problem righteously. If someone attacked your family, you would get angry. Why? To stir your heart and your strength to defend them if you need to. If the gospel is attacked or denied in the church or abominable sin is condoned or downplayed in the church, we ought to be angry about that. And what do we do with that anger? Do we yell and scream and curse and berate the people doing it? No, we would passionately denounce the error and defend the truth. Anger, when it's directed at solving a problem, is a good thing. In fact, the Apostle Paul wrote about things that deeply angered him. He said in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty nine, 29, this divinely inspired dear man of God whose heart was overflowing with love for the people of God, he wrote that he burned with indignation. That Greek means he was fiery hot when people were made to sin or stumble. He was righteously enraged by that. That is a good kind of anger. The elder must not be easily or quickly angered, and he can't be someone with a hot temper. But he ought to be someone who gets angry about certain things. If he doesn't get angry about anything, ever, then he's not like God. The sins, the crimes, and the murders that have been committed in fits of rage or passion are horrendous throughout history. They're horrendous in the Bible, too. In fact, our own legal system makes a distinction between premeditated and planned murders and murders of passion. Just remember what James 1.20 says. The wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Remember Jacob's two sons, Simeon and Levi? Remember those two? They murdered every man in the city when they heard that Shechem had violated their sister Dinah. Genesis 34.7 says that the sons of Jacob were grieved and very angry. And they actually conspired and came up with a plot. Sure, you can marry our sister, but y'all have to be circumcised. And three days into it, when they were at the most helpless and defenseless, they came upon the city and slaughtered every man in the city with a sword. 
And when Jacob was dying there in Egypt, when the whole family reunion, when they, they all come back together, and he makes a prophecy over each one of his sons, he says in Genesis 49, 5 and 6, Simeon and Levi are brothers. Instruments of cruelty are in their dwelling place. Let not my soul enter into their council. Let not my honor be united to their assembly. For in their anger they slew a man. It was remembered in that divine prophecy. They were murderers. Their sinful anger got the best of them. And so it's not anger. Anger is not a sin. But sinful anger, oh, that's kind of a redundancy. Of course, sinful anger is a sin. But anger that's out of control, anger that's not checked by the Spirit of God, anger that does not have the fruit of self-control attached to it, leads many to commit murder. The second one, is see number two there? Envy and discontentment often lead to murder. Envy and discontentment lead to murder. Joseph's brothers. Joseph's brothers. We're told in Genesis, they could not say a single kind word to their brother Joseph. They could not speak nicely to him. Why? They envied him. They envied the fact that their father, Jacob, clearly loved Joseph more than them. And because of that, because of that, they conspired to murder him. Genesis 37, 20. Come, therefore, let us now kill him and cast him into some pit, and we shall say, some wild beast has devoured him. You know, anger can be like a flash of lightning. It can be like a firecracker. But envy is real different from that. Envy is usually not a flash. It's usually not a firecracker. It's not suddenly here, suddenly gone. Envy is something that, that rots us into our bones. Envy sits and festers like an untreated wound with a deep infection. Proverbs 24, 5 says, Wrath is cruel, anger is a torrent, but who is able to stand before jealousy? How many people have murdered others in their thoughts, with their words, murdered their names, or with their own hands have killed their bodies because of envy, because of jealousy, because of discontentment? There's always the ultimate example of envy and discontentment leading to murder. Who's that in the Old, in the Old Testament? David. David. Why did David murder Uriah? Envy and discontentment. Envy and discontentment, along with a host of other sins. Lust, idolatry, not honoring father and mother, not being proper towards his inferiors, lying, stealing. Remember to break one commandment, essentially, is to break them all. They all overlap with each other. Now, why would I envy someone else or, or, or want to be what, what they are or have what they have? Because I'm not content with God, and I don't think he knows what he's doing in terms of what he's given me. Murder because of envy. Murder because of envy is the ultimate out-of-control temper tantrum. So envy and discontentment often lead to murder. And then, of course, sinful hatred. Think about this one. Why did the Pharisees murder Jesus? They hated him. And, of course, what was, why did they hate him? Jealousy, envy. See, these are, all, these are all connected. They wanted him to die. They hated him because they were jealous of him. Jesus was a better teacher. Jesus had more disciples. People were more drawn to him. He could do miracles. He was better than them. And so they hated him. The Pharisees were not going to be happy until he was dead. Sinful hatred lives upon the blood of its victims. Remember Haman in the book of Esther? Remember Haman? Remember why he hated Mordecai so much? Why did Haman hate Mordecai? Because Mordecai would not bow to him when he rode by on his horse. And therefore, Haman wanted to annihilate the entire Jewish race over that. That is sinful hatred that's drawn out of pride and arrogance. 
And the thing is, if Haman had succeeded, there would be no Savior. There would be no Messiah. Now, what other ways do we violate this commandment? How, how do we violate the sixth commandment? There's a lot of different ways that we can do this. A lot of different ways to kill people. Y'all hear this? So when you're witnessing to people, I've never killed anybody. Oh, yeah, you have. Yeah, you have. You can do it with your own hands. Remember point number one there? David's general, Joab. What does he do with Abner, with Saul's general? Just walks up to him, stabs him in the stomach, kills him, murdered him. Number two, we can murder in our minds. We can murder in our minds. 1 John 3, 15. Whoever hates his brother is what? A murderer. If you hate your brother, you're a murderer. You've killed him. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Powerful verse of scripture. 1 John 3, 15 is that one. Number three, the third way we violate this commandment with our mouths, with our speech, with our tongues. The scribes, the chief priests, the Pharisees, you know, they did not themselves scourge Jesus. And they did not nail him to the cross. But they murdered him with their tongues and with false accusations. The apostles of Jesus, after Christ rose from the dead and ascended back to heaven, they indicted the chief priests and the Pharisees by saying, you are his murderers. Now they could have said, well, we didn't nail him to a cross. We didn't scourge him. But indirectly they did. In Stephen's great sermon there in Acts 7.52, he says, Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers. False accusations and stirring up hatred in others against the innocent is murdering them. And if we've ever done that towards people that we don't like or we have an issue with, we've murdered them too. Without lifting a hand, or imagining a thing, we can murder people with our mouths by what we say and by what we don't say. We can also murder people in writing. We can also murder people in writing. How did David kill Uriah? He wrote a little note to Joab. Here's what it said. I mean, imagine this. David's sitting down, writing this down. Set Uriah in the forefront of the battle. He wrote that to him, to his general. And when Nathan the prophet rebuked David, he specifically told him in 2 Samuel 12, 9, you have killed Uriah. It wasn't the Ammonites. It was you, David. Yes, they were the ones shooting from the wall, but you wrote that note. You're the one that wanted him put in front so he would get killed. And therefore, David, you killed him. You can kill people in writing. Fifthly, by consenting to their deaths. Before he was Paul the apostle, Saul of Tarsus, the Pharisee, murdered the Christian deacon, Stephen. And how did he do that? By consenting to his death. Paul didn't actually throw stones at Stephen, but he was nevertheless guilty of his murder by consenting to it, by encouraging it. Acts 22.20, when he shared his story, he said, And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I also was standing by consenting to his death. And guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. Paul recognized, I killed Stephen. Yes, I didn't raise any stones. Yeah, I didn't throw anything at him. But it's my fault. I consented to his death. Sixthly, by not hindering the wrong death of someone. Pontius Pilate was guilty of this. Did Pontius Pilate kill Jesus? Yeah, he did. He sure did. But, but did Pilate scourge him or nail him to the cross? No. But this judge, Pilate pronounced Jesus repeatedly in public to be innocent. 
Pilate said over and over again, I find no fault in him. Now, Pilate was duty-bound before God to release Jesus because he was innocent and to let him go. Pilate knew he was innocent. And you know, his vain gesture, remember what he does at the end? He washes his hands in front of everybody. All that did was get a little dirt, perhaps, off of his fingers. It did not get rid of his guilt. It was his fault. He could have hindered his death, and he didn't. And therefore, Pilate is guilty of murdering Jesus. Seventh, by refusing to show mercy to someone in need. If we know someone is starving to death, we're freezing, and we have the means to help them and we don't, we've murdered them. We've murdered them. And then eighthly, here's a key one. By not executing justice upon capital criminals. This one, thinking about this one, I shudder to think how many judges in this nation are guilty of this one. Thomas Watson wrote this, quote, A felon, having committed six murders, the judge may be said to be guilty of five of them because he did not execute the felon for his first offense. And I would add that if those guilty of capital crimes were executed for those crimes, things like murder, rape, kidnapping, things like that, there'd be a lot less, exponentially less capital crimes that would need trials in courts. You know why? Because people would be afraid to do them. How many times these horrible crimes and kidnapping and and, and rape and murder and everything else, and you find out they've done this over and over and over again and, and are out of prison. They should have been put to death, and the people that didn't execute them are guilty of those murders too. Failure to put to death criminals guilty of capital crimes. The magistrate, when, they, when those individuals commit similar crimes, they bring blood guiltiness upon the ones that did not execute them. And also, it's very important, putting capital, crime, capital criminals to death is not murder. Putting capital criminals to death is not murder. It's justice at the hand of God, wielding the sword of his divine justice through the hand of the magistrate. Remember what Paul says about the magistrate in Romans 13? He is God's minister. He is God's minister. And he does not bear the sword in vain. He is to execute vengeance upon the evildoer. If the magistrate refuses to swing that sword in God's name upon the capital criminal when he's found guilty, whatever that capital criminal does to other people after that will fall upon the head of the magistrate who refused to execute him. Now there's five other things that make murder worse. Obviously it's always very serious. It's always something that's a heinous crime. It's a heinous sin in God's sight. But there's five things that can make it worse. If we shed someone's blood without cause... I've heard police tell stories about people who were murdered for less than $10 or for their shoes or because someone cut them off in traffic. Thomas Watson said, a bee will not sting unless it's provoked. But many, when not provoked, will take away the life of another. This makes the sin of blood more bloody, end quote. The second thing that makes murder even worse, if we shed blood while breaking an oath. Remember when Joshua swore to the Gibeonites, we will never touch you, we won't lay a hand on you, even though the Gibeonites had deceived them by pretending they came from a long distance away, way back in Joshua chapter 9. Eventually, King Saul kills the Gibeonites. And so not only did he murder them, but he also broke an oath while murdering them. That makes it even worse. Third way that murder can be even more heinous, murdering a public person, killing judges, killing kings, 
prophets of God, ministers, elders, deacons. Herod was a very evil and wicked man. We know that all all the Herods, the, the name Herod in the Bible is synonymous with opposition to the gospel. But the one that killed John the Baptist, he was especially particularly evil. He had piled up iniquity very high, including marrying his own brother's wife. But the scriptures tell us in Luke 3.20 that, quote, above all, he shut up John in prison. And even above that, Herod had John the Baptist murdered just to save save face at a party. Remember how guilty David felt when he cut off a small piece of Saul's garment? His heart smited him for that. Why did that make David feel so bad? Because King Saul was King Saul. The Lord's anointed. Imagine how guilty David would have felt if he'd cut off Saul's head. Four, murdering family, murdering new relations. Children that murder their parents are monsters. Parents who murder their kids, husbands who murder their wives, and vice versa. They're monsters. In the Old Testament, listen, your life is forfeit not only if you murdered your father and mother, but if you hit them or if you curse them, you were put to death. So killing near relations makes murder even worse. And then fifthly, murdering an innocent person, a person who from your perspective is innocent. I want to tell you, if, if a nation or a people kill their own righteous people, their best and most godly people, that nation is killing itself. It's because of the presence of godly and righteous people that the judgment of God is often held back. The nation of Israel and in the south, Judah, toward the end of their existences there in the promised land, they often seemed bent on making sure that their land was rid of all prophets. That they, they wanted to be rid of all their godly people, of all semblances of people who would promote or stand for what is right in the sight of God. Do you ever get that impression, living in America, that we're, we're headed in that direction? We don't want anyone to tell us the truth anymore. We want you all to be quiet. If you won't celebrate our depravity, we're going to throw you in jail. We don't want anything to do with you. We want you to go away. Are we headed in that direction? We might be. And as I said, all murder is vile and it's all evil in the sight of God. It all cries out for, for vengeance. But those five circumstances can make murder even more heinous. These things cry for vengeance of that innocent blood. Uh, that, that shouts out, it shouts out even louder. You shall not commit murder, is the commandment. It forbids private people to shed blood, except in self-defense. And as I said, when capital criminals are put to death by the magistrate's sword, that's not murder, that is justice. If we take vengeance into our own hands, we are sinning. And if the magistrate fails to bring God's justice upon capital criminals, they are sinning. Thomas Watson wrote this, and I'll tell you... <clears throat> America's courts need to understand this biblical truth. Watson said this, quote, A magistrate ought not to let the sword of justice rust in the scabbard. And he should not let the sword be too sharp by severity, so neither should the edge of it be blunted by too much leniency, end quote. You should not commit murder also does not prohibit just war. John the Baptist the final Old Testament prophet before the public ministry of the Lord Jesus. He was asked directly by soldiers. He he was asked, and what shall we do? To which John the Baptist said, do not intimidate anyone or accuse falsely and be content with your wages. Well, their wages as what? As soldiers, as fighters. 
John did not denounce, nor did Jesus ever condemn the vocation of being a soldier. In fact, Jesus even said that it was a Roman centurion. In Matthew 8.10, he said, Assuredly, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. He didn't add to that. If only he would give up this abominable practice of being a soldier. He didn't think to add that, along with the Anabaptists at the time of the Reformation. If only they understood, taking up the sword is outside the perfection of Christ. That's just not true. It's a valid vocation. War is a terrible thing. It's the absolute last resort. But even when war happens, God gives very specific instructions on how it's to be done. In Deuteronomy chapter 20, I would encourage you to read Deuteronomy 20 to see how a just war is supposed to be fought. Okay, point number two there in your outline, the larger point there. What kind of sin is murder according to scripture? What makes it so offensive to God? Number one, it's an attack on God himself. Murder is an attack on God. Murder, murdering someone's body is lashing out directly at God himself. That's one of the reasons Satan is a murderer. He's called a murderer by Jesus in John eight forty four. That's why abortion, we would say abortion, is satanically evil. Anywhere you see human lives being lost needlessly, innocent lives being destroyed, that's the work of, of Satan himself. Because it's one of the only ways he can lash out at God is to destroy God's image. Remember what he's like? He's like a, a lion prowling around looking for what? For a person, for a human being, a life to destroy. Man is God's image. Okay? Your, your dog, your cat, your hamster, they're not made in God's image. Man is not an animal. Man did not descend from the trees in Africa hundreds of thousands of years ago and learn how to turn grunts and squeals into nouns, verbs, adjectives, adverbs, and participles. Man is the image of God. The earthly penalty for murder is set forth by God for all time, right after the flood of Noah. Genesis 9, 6, whoever sheds man's blood by man, his blood shall be shed for in the image of God, he made man. And so what is murder? It is an attack on God because man is the image of God. Number two, there in your outline, it imitates God's, murder imitates God's and the church's great enemy, Satan. John 8, 44, you are of your father, the devil, Jesus told his opponents, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning. Man is as far from being like God as he can be when he murders, when he kills God's image, when he hates God's image. Thirdly, murder makes us accursed if we do it. When Cain killed Abel, in Genesis 4.11, God told him, and now you are cursed from the earth. And Cain is driven out from the presence of the Lord to live in the land of Nod on the east of Eden. But he lived the rest of his life a cursed person. Fourthly, it brings us a miserable life in this world. Because David murdered Uriah and several others with the sword of the Ammonites and with a note to Joab. The sword never departed from his house. David's son, Absalom, murdered David's son, Ammon, because Ammon raped their sister, Tamar. Absalom also tried to kill David and take over the kingdom. Shimei cursed at David and threw rocks at him. And all David could think to say in response is, let him curse because the Lord has said to him, curse David. When, when that stuff happened, it's, yeah, it's what, it's what I deserve because of what I did. David's life was never the same after he killed somebody. 
What's remarkable is that although we know that David felt remorse for the adultery that he committed with Bathsheba, in David's great psalm of repentance in Psalm 51, he doesn't actually even mention the adultery. He only mentions the guilt of bloodshed. Psalm 51, verse 4, Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, the God of my salvation. The stress, the heartache, the turmoil that committing murder brought to David devastated him personally and devastated his family. Yes, David repented and David is in heaven right now. But the price that he and those close to him paid for the envy, for the lust, for the discontentment, which led him to murder, it was a high price. It was a very high price. Psalm 55, 23, here's a great Revelation from God. Bloody men shall not live out half their days. Bloody men shall not live out half their days. And fifthly, here's what makes murder so heinous. Murder binds men over to hell. Revelation 21.8. Murderers shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. The way we treat other images of God is extraordinarily important. The way that we talk to them, the way we think about them, what we say about them, and certainly what we do to them is extremely important to God. The unrepentant wicked who die in their sins with murder on their head, they will go to hell. Now, thirdly, this morning, I want to give you a word of caution and some hope. Murder is not the unforgivable sin. It is not an unforgivable sin. It is a sin for which people often carry terrible guilt and shame. Maybe you haven't physically killed someone in your past, but maybe you have in your mind or your heart or in writing or with your words. I just want to remind you of the kind of company that you're in. Moses killed an Egyptian and buried him in the sand. Moses was forgiven. Moses was one of the greatest men of God ever used of God to glorify his name in all of history. David was also, everyone knows, a man after God's own heart. That's God's own description of him. David's foray into adultery, into lying, and multiple homicides to cover it up, multiple murders to cover it up. It was abominable. It was vile, to be sure. But David repented, and he continued to be greatly used of God. Paul the Apostle was, by his own admission, responsible for the death and the untold misery of a lot of Christian people before he was saved by the Lord Jesus. Saul of Tarsus had the blood of Stephen, the first Christian martyr, on his hands and in his heart, and he never forgot about it. Please remember, dear ones, that the the law of God, that's the standard, that's the ideal. That's the ideal, that's the, the perfection of God revealed in his standard for mankind. And then there's this other thing called real life in a fallen world, where we're all guilty in our own ways of breaking those commandments. Our own sinful hearts are often our worst enemies. And so I, I say to myself, I say to all of you, nobody has ever kept the sixth commandment except Jesus. No one has. Nobody including the people we witness to who say, I've never killed anybody. Yet there are times when, you know, even we as Christians can feel a little self-righteous, a little confident when considering such things. I would venture to guess, probably, everyone here can say that. I have never actually murdered someone physically. But the fact is, all of us are guilty 
of doing what is forbidden in the commandment and not doing what it requires of us. All of us are. Jesus bled and died and fully satisfied divine justice for every single way that all of his people have ever and will ever violate the sixth commandment. Praise God for that. Romans 8.33. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Romans 8.1. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. All of the murder that's gone on in our lives or hearts or minds or writing or whatever, all the hatred that we've given vent to towards fellow images of God that we should not have given vent to because we are not allowed to take revenge on anyone, it's under the blood of Christ. Praise God for that. Now, as I said, this is just part one of, of probably at least two, maybe three sermons on the prohibition against murder. And we focus thus far only on how we can murder others by murdering their names and their bodies, but we can also murder people's souls. You can also murder people's souls. I'm going to have a lot to say about that by a bad example, by teaching or refusing to condemn false doctrine or not teaching sound doctrine. We can also sin by murdering ourselves. We are duty-bound to use all lawful means to preserve our own lives and the lives of others. We ought to take care of ourselves physically and spiritually. If we stop reading the Bible or stop attending church and stop fellowshipping with God's people, we're murdering ourselves. If we needlessly put our, our own lives in danger by things like texting while you're driving or doing anything unnecessarily reckless or foolish, we are murdering ourselves and others by endangering them and endangering us. And we're going to cover those things in subsequent messages. But the thing to remember, God identifies with your neighbor. He identifies with images that are all around you and he identifies with you. You're not allowed to hurt yourself. That is a violation of this commandment. And I know in real life, we all go through difficult times where we think, I don't want to be alive anymore. It's wrong for us to think that way. Your life is just as much from God and a gift of God as the life of your neighbor. Human beings are not more evolved animals with bigger brains. Every human life is fundamentally different from every animal and plant life. We alone are the image of God. We are covenantal creatures. We have the capacity for communion with God. God is personally offended when we mistreat any of his images, even if they are our enemies. God identifies with the lowest people in the eyes of the world too. Jesus told that memorable parable wherein he says regarding the feeding of the hungry and giving water to the thirsty and clothing the naked, visiting the sick, coming to those who are in prison. Matthew 25, 40, the king will answer them and say, assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. So who is Jesus in your midst? It's all these images around you. It's the people in your life. And you know, your spouse counts as one of those. Your children count as one of those. Your younger siblings, your older siblings, your fellow church members, they all count. And as much as you've done it to them, Jesus says, you've done it to me. And then he says, also, assuredly I say to you, and as much as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. The most practical and eminent way you and I can express our love for Jesus. Do you want to love Jesus? you want to show Jesus how much you love him? Love the people that are closest to you then and love your church. 
Love your spouse. Love your kids. In your homes, in your church, your workplace. Be considerate of people. Be kind. Be an encourager. Notice people. Encourage what you see that's good. Oftentimes, I want to tell you, I want to encourage you. It's those who have the largest pile of sin when it comes to hurting people. When they come to know Christ, they often become the most loving, the most sensitive, and the most kind-hearted and patient people that there are. A lot of times it's guilt from the past that fuels a new resolve. From now on, I'm going to love people the way they should be loved. I'm going to love my neighbor in, the way, in all the ways that I failed to in the past, no more. Let me give you an example of this, one of the most touching in the whole Bible. When Paul and Barnabas preached in the city of Lycaonia, they healed a man crippled from birth who had never walked. This guy was crippled from the womb. It must have been a spectacular miracle. And the people were so impressed by it that they thought Paul and Barnabas were gods. And they come and they're trying to sacrifice to them. And Paul and Barnabas said, don't do that. We're human beings with a nature just like, like you. And we're telling you to turn away from this. They even thought, well, well, one was Hermes and the other one was some other of the pantheon of deities. And they preached the gospel to them. But then we read this, that after preaching the gospel to the people of Lycaonia that came out to them, we read this in Acts 14, 19. Then the Jews from Antioch and Iconium came there to Lycaonia. And having persuaded the multitudes, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. However, when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and went into the city. Here Paul is on the receiving end of rocks that he once consented to others to throw at Stephen. He once took delight in someone doing this to a Christian, and now he's the Christian on the receiving end of the rocks. Now I can tell you, had that been me, if I had survived it, I would have gotten up and gathered the disciples and we would have had a prayer meeting reciting imprecatory psalms against the people that did that. But you know why Paul didn't do that? You know why he dusted himself off and went right back in there? He was a murderer himself. He was a killer. But you know what? He was a forgiven, justified, adopted, deeply loved by Jesus. Killer, murderer. And that fact was never lost on him. And I think being forgiven of that made him the most patient man there was. He saw in those guys throwing rocks at him. He saw himself over there. That was me once. He speaks of his persecution of the church. How he was the chief of sinners. He says he's not worthy to be called an apostle because I, I persecuted the church of God. But oh, what patience and mercy and determination he had to win other pig-headed, insolent, arrogant, self-righteous people to Christ. People who were exactly what he had once been. He saw nobody as a lost cause. God can save me, he can save them. You guys throw rocks at me? Yeah, been there, done that. Even, even that can be forgiven. Dusts himself off, he survives it, goes right back in there. If you're guilty of murder in any way, in any of the ways that we've covered from Scripture here this morning, and you've repented, and you're trusting in Jesus, let that blessed assurance that Christ's death has satisfied divine justice perfectly, let that warm your soul today and grant you peace. Let that warm your soul and, and grant you peace, knowing that Christ has borne it all. Remember what Jesus told the self-righteous Pharisee, Simon, 
He was in his house and that, that woman of the town, that prostitute, gathers her courage and goes right into the Pharisee's house and falls down at Jesus' feet, never says a word, just weeps on his feet and is kissing his feet. And Jesus knows that Pharisee is utterly disgusted by this. Jesus knows his thoughts. And he says, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he says, teacher, say on. And he says this, there was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which one of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she's washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. And then he says to her, your sins are forgiven. See, Simon with all of his guests, they should have been down there on the ground too. They should have been crying on his feet too. If you're repentant, it doesn't matter what you've done. Murder, adultery, fornication, witchcraft, whatever. Jesus Christ, on the authority of God's holy word, I tell you what he told that repentant prostitute, your sins are forgiven too. And if that includes murder, then that is surely forgiven as well. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we bless your name for this great commandment. May we seek to, in thankfulness to you for the gospel, live it out in our lives by the loving treatment of our neighbor, whether they are our friends or our enemies, whether they're our brothers and sisters in the Lord or something else. And we pray that you'd be with us now as we take communion together, as we sing together. May your name be glorified. May our hearts rest upon the finished work of our Savior, who died for all the ways that we murder. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.